This is episode 163 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, How We Talk, The Conversation Machine. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome a linguist to the show today. Nick Enfield is with us, and I'll introduce him. He's a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney and director of the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Center. He's head of a research excellence initiative on the crisis of post-truth discourse. His research on language, culture, cognition, and social life is based on long-term field work in mainland Southeast Asia, especially Laos. His recent books include Natural Causes of Language, The Utility of Meaning, Distributed Agency, and How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation, which is what we're going to talk about today. So welcome to the show, Nick. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. All right. I really enjoyed the book, uh, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. I especially appreciated that it was very succinct. Uh, It gets right to the point. And so I want to get straight to the point here, too. And so today we'll be talking about what you call the conversation machine. And what do you mean by that? Well, the conversation machine was actually an original uh, title that was my working title for the book and uh, it ended up being called how we talk due to you know the publisher's uh, preferences but you're, mm. you're quite right that the conversation machine is the concept at the core of the book now what I mean by that there's really kind of two parts to this concept of the conversation machine so it's a book about language and a lot of the scientific research that's gone on about language has been trying to understand what is it about the human mind that makes language possible. So, you know, we are the only creature that has language. Any child that's born will will acquire the language that's being spoken in their community. And you can't, you know, take a a dog or a cat or a lizard or a snake and have (laughs) them acquire language. So there's something special about human beings' minds something that we're born with that makes it possible for us to have language. Now, the conversation machine is one answer to that question of what is this thing that, that humans have that makes language possible. So it's it's something in our minds, something in our cognition, something in our psychology that makes language possible. And, and it's what I try to describe in the book. It has to do with a set of skills, a set of tendencies, a set of interests that we have in uh, that, that are very social in nature mm-hmm. and they make conversation possible in a, in a bunch of ways that I uh, that I talk about in the book. Now, the second sense of conversation machine is if we think of a machine as being, you know, the first sense that I just described is sort of like it is a machine in our minds in some sense that that, that allows us to, uh, to run along in conversation. But there's another sense of, of conversation machine, which is very much a joint uh, activity, you know. Uh, yeah. So imagine, imagine something like a um, a hand car. You know, one of those cars that runs along on uh, railway tracks. And uh, there are certain types of those where you have two people on it, and one person sort of pushes this lever down while the other pulls it up, and then it goes back down the other way. And the two people together uh, work together to make this car trundle along. This is the second sense of conversation machine that when we're in a conversation, it's as if we're riding along together with this other person in a kind of vehicle, if you like. And that is where we see certain aspects of language unfold. That's when we see certain properties of language that, in fact, you won't see if you look at written language. But it's the most common form of language. It's the 
the form of language that we're engaged in right now. It's the form of language that the children learn their first languages from. It's it's the most sort of pervasive form of language, the one where we are engaged with other people in a kind of joint activity. I'm talking, you're listening, and then suddenly you're talking, now I'm listening. Mm-hmm. It's very much um, like a vehicle that we ride along in together. And so, so that's sort of the second sense of, of conversation machine. And the idea that I'm trying to explore in the book is that language is well understood if you think about how it relates to this thing called the conversation machine it, it, it's kind of like an alternative if you like to maybe not an alternative but it's complementary to the the more um, let's say prevalent emphasis in how we tend to think about language and that is uh, written language uh, you know the language of historical records uh, and, and that sort of thing so that's a sort of basic idea of what the conversation machine as a concept is about. I love that image, especially because it leads well into my next question, which you spend quite a bit of time on at the beginning of the book about timing. And you've done quite a lot of research there in how quickly people perceive that somebody else has stopped talking in a conversation. And so then they are getting themselves ready then to to respond. And so can you give us some highlights? of your work there? Sure. So uh, conversation is, um, as you, as you just suggested, it's a, it's a finely timed activity. If you observe people who are in a conversation, uh, as I suggested just before, you know, one person's talking, uh, the other person's listening, and then, you know, then I'll stop talking and then you will start talking. And it's a kind of a turn-taking uh, process where you know I've got my turn to say something and now it's your turn to say something it's a slightly kind of quirky way of putting it we don't you know we don't normally think of it in that way when we're having a conversation it just sort of flows back and forth but if you actually record people having a conversation and you focus on how it's structured that's essentially what you see is that you've got you know people uh, taking turns at being the one who's speaking and the one who's listening it's possible of course to have overlapping speech where you know you and I are both talking at the same time sometimes we might be talking over each other in an argument or we might be saying the same thing at the same time Mm -hmm. and at other times of course maybe nobody's talking there's a there's a gap or there's a kind of a, a pause or a lapse in the conversation but on the whole in general you've got this situation where we try to have always one person talking at a time and in a completely sort of organic, self-organizing way, we somehow uh, achieve this. Now, it, it's it's almost miraculous how mm-hmm. we do this because, mm-hmm. you know, language is this incredibly um, fast-moving, detailed behavior, you know, very finely controlled um motor behavior in our vocal tract and our vocal apparatus you know we're, we're moving our tongue around at sort of lightning speed we're articulating words we're fetching those words from our brains and you know incredible operations are going on at very high speed inside our heads and in our bodies when we're using language on top of that we need to be anticipating you know the timing of others so that we can for example you know come in with our turn at a suitable moment. Now, this is where the kind of fine timing comes in that you that that you were asking about in your in your question. So, you know, when I say something, when I say a simple sentence, uh, you know, "Have you got the time?" or "You know, this soup tastes good." These little sentences are going to run for I don't know two or three seconds, maybe five seconds, maybe shorter. Uh, we can't really predict in advance how long somebody's turn at talk is going to be sometimes of course I might be telling you a whole narrative about what happened on the bus this morning and in that case your turn might go on for a minute or two Mm -hmm. language when we're using it is unfolding in this completely unpredictable way and yet we need to monitor it so that as a listener we know when's time to to jump in well it turns out that people are very good at this and people will jump in and take up their turn. Uh, For example, if I ask you a question and you give an answer, people uh, will come in with their answer very 
smartly, very quickly at the end of the sentence. And, and uh, just to give you sort of a one general finding, if you record conversations, uh, you know, thousands of different turns are being transferred between one person and another person, and you just measure the time that it takes for a person to take up their turn in a conversation, there's a grand average of around about two or 300 milliseconds, that's 0.2 to 0.3 of a second uh, of silence that elapses between the end of one person's turn and the beginning of the next person's turn. So you can think of that as being the gap in time between, for example, the end of a question and the beginning of an answer to that question. So 0.2 to 0.3 of a second in terms of psychological processes, it's, you know, some people would consider that to be a long time, but for us in conversation, it actually sounds like no gap in time whatsoever. It's a perfectly mm-hmm. smooth transition. So that's sort of one important finding. And we, in a big study that we did uh, with a, a large team of researchers who collected conversational data from around the world, we found that there's not a huge amount of variation between different languages of the world with respect to this kind of average time that it takes to to, to swap speakers in a, in a conversation. There is some variation. So, for example, in Japanese, we found that people uh, were quicker on average at responding to a question, while in Danish, we found that people left more silence before responding to a question. But the leeway or the average kind of amount of uh, difference is really quite small. So if the average is around a quarter of a second, uh, then those other languages don't uh, depart from that average by more than about two-tenths of a second. So so that's a general finding um, that, uh, that we've got from languages around the world, that there's this incredible speed of response. Uh, that's the sort of average, if you like, for you know what's normal and what people aim for when they're taking up their turn in a conversation. Another finding that's really important in this context is what I uh, refer to in the book as the one-second rule. So I just mentioned that there's an average response time in, in conversation um, of around, you know, let's say a quarter of a second. What if I don't respond? What if you ask me a question and I say nothing? Mm-hmm. Well, there's something called the one-second rule, which uh, is some, uh, a term that, that Gail Jefferson, uh, Herb Clark, other researchers of language have, have come up with. And the rule says if one second of time elapses when somebody should be taking up their turn in the conversation, that's too long. Something's got to happen. Uh, so, for example, if I've asked you a question and a second goes by without you responding to it, then I might follow up. I might ask it again or I might say, huh, or something, you know, mm-hmm. to check, did you did you hear me? Or I might kind of repeat or rephrase the question. But there's this kind of limit of tolerance of silence or, uh, where, uh, of, of around about exactly one second um, where people kind of decide, well, maybe you didn't hear me maybe there's a problem in this conversation right now, Mm. Uh, somebody will at that one second point jump in and uh, try to fix it. And there's there's sort of quite a lot to say uh, about about what that one second window is is telling us. Yeah, it was one of the things I enjoyed about the book was you talk about this kind of dance between two people. And a lot of it's just the way we are used to talking. But when you change something, you also talk about the idea that sometimes when you're not participating in the dance the way the other person expects, it's not unintentional, meaning you do it on purpose. And there are cases where someone might use a delay like that for a particular purpose, for a social purpose or some other um uh, intention. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there, there are reasons why we might be slow at responding to something. One of those reasons might simply be that we're thinking about what the answer might be. For example, you ask me a question 
you know, and what sport is the Stanley Cup awarded? Mm-hmm. Might be a question. And depending on where I come from, I might, I might or might not know the answer to that. So if I'm sort of thinking, racking my brain, or I really just don't know and I'm kind of trying to figure it out, that's going to slow my response down. So sometimes a slow response is really something I don't have any control over. I, I, you know, I literally can't arrive at the right thing to say within one second. So I, I'm, I'm kind of slowed down. That's oftentimes exactly where people will begin to use so-called fillers like um and ah uh, and, and that mm-hmm. type of thing uh, within that one second window to indicate, hang on, uh, there's a problem. Now that delay due to kind of cognitive overload and similar things means that people come to interpret delay as being you know some kind of a a problem so so that means that if you want to signal a problem if you want to kind of intentionally indicate that there's a, a problem with the response that you're about to give what we find is that people will delay their response well, what am I talking about? I'm talking, for example, about when uh, you are invited to go to somebody's place for dinner, for example, and you can't make it or you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's what we find is that when people say yes, answer yes, or, or, or they take up or accept an invitation, this type of thing in conversation, they will do it rapidly. Mm-hmm. They won't delay their answer. They will you know, respond straight away. But when they want to say no, we find uh, a very strong tendency for people to slow their response down. And it's not really that they don't know what to say, right? They know that they're going to say no. But uh, what, what appears to be going on is that people are exploiting the kind of meaning of a delay, which mm-hmm. says, you know, I'm having a problem producing this next turn. Uh, and using it to kind of signal that there is a problem, uh, you know, that, for example, this is not something that I really want to say to you. So there's mm-hmm. a general preference in in conversation for us to be cooperative, for us to, you know, follow along the flow that's being determined by the other person. So there's a there's a a result of this kind of delay, which is something we observe and I speak about in the book, and and it's the following. You have an example where, for instance, I say to you, perhaps could you come over and pick me up? Let's say we're going to a meeting uh, together. We're on the phone and I'm saying, well, you know, maybe you could pick me up on the way. And then uh, this is an example I talk about in the book. And then there's a silence of, you know, a second or so, uh, no response to this kind of suggestion or or request. (laughs) Um, So the, the first person then instead of, you know, continuing to wait they kind of rephrase with a more pessimistic line which is something like or maybe that wouldn't give you enough time and then immediately the other person responds no it wouldn't Mm -hmm. Uh, so what they've done by delaying their response was actually getting successfully getting out of having to actually deliver you know a, a decline of that request and in the end uh the original speaker kind of helps them out and does it for them in some sense so so oftentimes we find that what we call in this line of research dispreferred responses um, ones that are kind of not what the speaker is going for if you're going to produce a dispreferred response typically you're going to delay that and you're going to uh, slow it down it was one of the things i enjoyed about the book was that you're kind of a fly on the wall in a lot of these conversations. And so you get this kind of voyeuristic, hmm, you know, uh, what's going on here, looking at these conversations under a microscope. And and it's so human, right, these interactions that that you lay out in the book. And you can see how someone, when they're asked a question like that, can you give me a ride? And then there's a long pause. It's like, Oh, you know, they don't they don't want to give them a ride or it's not going to work out for them to get a ride. So it it's really fascinating. I just kept being struck as I was reading the book and reading the conversations, how human it is, you know, that you can see what's going on in someone's mind. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, partly it's it's the access you get to, as you say, what's going on in people's minds. 
what you also are getting access to is what's going on in people's relationships. And, you know, with language, often when we study language, let's say in school, um, you know, we're looking at cleaned up bits of language. We're looking, for example, at stories, novels, we're maybe looking at news articles, typically kind of written language or monologues, uh, you know, public speaking, things like that, things where there's something's been rehearsed or it's been edited and where it's more of a performance, if you like. Looking at conversation, uh, just as you point out, is is it feels... <laughs> Like you're fly on the wall, as you put it, mm. because what you're what you're looking at when you look at conversation is a human relationship in action. Mm-hmm. You're looking at how you know that this is this is the thing about language that it's the number one tool that human beings have for conducting their relationships, mm-hmm. and so that's why when you look at actual conversational data, you get this sense of you know, not just being somehow getting access to people's minds, but really getting access to how their lives are being conducted and how their lives are, are unfolding in real time. Yes, to switch gears a little bit, although it's kind of about that naturalistic speech, because I talk to so many people on my podcast, and then I go back through and edit the recordings to kind of clean things up for people when they have started to misspeak, or I'll take out some of the filler words if they're excessive, or all kinds of things that can go wrong, you know, the cat comes in and and all that. So I end up listening to people talk a lot, and I find it very fascinating. Obviously, I was interested in your book, but I have a bachelor's in linguistics, and so all of these things are interesting to me. But one thing I notice as I edit people's recordings is that they often have a very distinctive way of talking, that they will use filler words in a particular way, or they'll uh, use an um kind of in isolation between sentences, which is a little odd, or they'll end their a lot of their sentences with a so. It, it, it's just interesting to see all these different stylings that people have come up with. And I was curious if you, obviously you study people who are uh, who it, kind of in general, what are people doing? But I wondered if you had any thoughts about how people develop their own kind of linguistic identity. Yeah, so one way of talking about that own linguistic identity is with a word that we learn in Linguistics 101, which is idiolect. So, you know, you've heard of the word dialect. Um, Mm. We speak in different dialects depending, for example, on which part of a country we come from. But there's this other term, idiolect, which refers to the characteristics of an individual's way of speaking. And that concept acknowledges that no two people really speak in exactly the same way. Every Mm. person has a an individual profile, if you like, of how they talk. If you're looking at things like what words do they know, uh, you know, what grammatical constructions they use, and what sound system they use, well, you know, that's going to overlap a lot, might overlap 99% with a lot of people in their own world. So, you know, that's what we mean when we say two people speak the same language. They can Mm-hmm. They can understand each other's words and, mm-hmm. and so on. But once you drill down, just as you point out, you start to see these uh, subtle differences. And, and, and really that's where you can see them quite, quite clearly uh, is in what we might call their, their style, their verbal style. And it's those kinds of habits, if you like, of speech that characterise a little bit that, that style. So I've certainly noticed in my work and my own research that people, individuals will use certain words more than other individuals. And, and it's it's going to be those type of uh, what I've sometimes called traffic signals, you know, these words like okay and um and uh-huh, you know. So those types of words, some people will use them uh, more than others. But it's not only those things. I mean, there's a lot of other aspects of language. And, and I think one of the examples I often cite is um, swear words Hmm. so you know swearing is something that you hear in certain situations in certain walks of life but 
if those even with those things being held equal so for example i might i might swear more when i'm just with close friends than when i'm you know at a at a meeting at work or something like that mm-hmm. but if you kind of average things out some people just they simply use swear words more often than other people or they're more likely to use slang terms than other people or they're more likely to use you know colorful idioms than other people and these are a sort of there's a whole palette in a way of ways in which a person can uh, have a, a an idiolect and have a certain you know unique individual linguistic identity and, and so I think you're quite right that that these conversational elements uh, are going to be part of that. I mean going to the first part of your question, I, I really know what you mean about what it's like to listen carefully to recorded language (laughs) Um, and to me actually it was a revelation so you know I I studied uh, linguistics as a undergraduate at at, uh, university and it was very let's say abstract in certain kinds of ways and and I also studied uh, Asian languages and I studied in the classic way you know you have textbooks and you learn how to read and write and you look at, at, at texts and so on and I did this for a number of years, and eventually one day I found myself in the field in, in Laos where I do most of my work, and and I knew that there was this technique where you would take a tape recorder and record people speaking the language that you wanted to study, and so I, I went set about doing that. And by that point, I actually knew the language quite well. I was able to understand it and, and talk it and write it and read it. But this was the first time I'd worked with you know, uncontrolled sound recordings. And to me, it was an absolute revelation. It completely changed my understanding of what the language was like because when I started transcribing it, you know, listening word by word, line by line, and trying to to write it all out, I realised what's going on. There's all of these words (laughs) that I have never seen written down. So words like, oh, um, okay, uh uh-huh, you know, so... Those types of words are not really included in a lot of what you would learn as a, you know, when you're learning a second language. And suddenly I realized that those words not only were kind of flooding the, the recordings, but they were there for a reason. They mm-hmm. were doing all sorts of work. They were helping the speakers to manage their conversations and manage their language in various ways. And while my first instinct was to kind of edit all those those little words out. Um, I quickly began to see them as being actually part of the competence that people have when they are able to speak a language. And so, you know, kids learn to control these words when they're learning their first language, uh, just as adults should be learning those kinds of words when they're when they're learning uh, a second language. One of the areas that you talk about in the book is how listeners participate in a conversation. And can you give us some examples of that and and also what that participation, the effect that that kind of participation has on the narrator? Yeah, well, this kind of comes back to the idea that I touched on earlier about this vehicle that we are sitting in in a sense when we are having a conversation that it's not only me talking but but you're on the other side of this hand car and when I'm pushing the lever down you've got to be pulling it up and and vice versa what listeners do when people are speaking is important and it's really part of the overall kind of system that that we call conversation and I'll give you an example so the In the book, I talk about research that was done um, by Janet Bavilis, a a psychologist of language from Canada and and her colleagues, where they brought some people into the lab, um, just a recording studio, and and said to them, okay, um, just get pairs of people and you sit across the table from each other and one of you, you know, just tell the other one about a you know, near-death experience or kind of a near-miss experience, I think it was. So people would come out with just stories of what happened that summer or what have you. For example, they've 
were cutting trees uh, in a forest and a tree kind of fell and nearly hit them, but they just got out in time. Stories up their sleeves. And so um, they just would naturally tell these stories to each other. Now, if you record those stories and study how they're structured, what you find is, you know, there's a very particular structure to how a story like that has to work when you're in conversation. So first of all, you've got to launch the story in some way. You've got to let the other person know that, you know, you're about to tell them a narrative about something. Like Mm -hmm. if I see you at morning, you know, morning tea and I want to tell you about what happened on the bus that day, I've got to give you an indication that I'm about to tell you a story and not just, you know, one sentence. So Mm -hmm. I might say something like, you know, something crazy happened on the bus this morning Mm -hmm. or I might say, you know, here's my near miss story. So as a listener, you have been signaled, you know, now you need to kind of listen, pay attention, wait until uh, the end, as it were, of the story. But that's not so simple because in a way you need to anticipate what will actually be the end of that story. So, for example, in the in the near miss stories example, you've got to be able to recognise which part of the story is just the preamble, it's just the lead up, <laughs> and which part of the story is, you know, the punchline. That's the near miss part, right? Mm-hmm. So when Bavlis and colleagues and, you know, many others who studied stories in conversation have seen the same thing, when, when you look at uh, what listeners do in stories, they will you know, look at the speaker, they'll nod, and they will also say things like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, wow, those types of little interjections, just like a, a word here or a particle there, as the story is being told. So that's one first thing that they do. They will interject these little kind of uh, what sometimes people call continuous or back-channel uh, expressions. Hmm. And the second thing they have to do is when the punchline comes around they've got to react appropriately right they've got to go wow you were so lucky or gosh that's crazy or you know whatever the appropriate response is or if it's a joke you know that's when they have to to laugh (laughs) so you know as a listener you you've actually got some work to do when someone is is telling you something so the first thing that uh and company did was just to kind of map that out and, and, and and show that you know listeners have quite specific behaviors that they engage in but they wanted to take it a step further and they said well look we think that this type of listener behavior actually helps the speaker to tell a better story it helps the speaker in structuring how they deliver the story it helps the pacing of the speaker and this really underlines you know this concept that that we are together in a conversation working towards a kind of a joint achievement as it were it's a collaborative thing. So they did a, a second phase of the experiment where instead of just telling the listener to listen to the story, they had a kind of secret task. So they told the listener, all right, I'm not, we're not going to let the storyteller know this, but your secret task is you have to press a button underneath the table. The storyteller can't, can't see this button, but you have to press this button every time the person says a word with the letter T in it or, you know, a word starting with the letter T or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what they did was to completely distract the, the listener from mm-hmm. the story. So the listeners were essentially distracted. They weren't really paying attention to the content of the story. They were just listening for, you know, the letter T. And <laughs> what this meant was that they they might say things like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, but they would do it at inappropriate moments. Mm-hmm. And even worse, when the storyteller got to the kind of punchline and the main bit where the listener was supposed to kind of, you know, consummate the story by delivering their their uptake of it, they wouldn't. They'd just give another, uh uh-huh, something (laughs) like that, right? And this led to the storyteller having to kind of circle back, retell the end part to try to get the listener to sort of acknowledge it in the right way. And using various measures, they showed that basically storytellers, just, you know, everyday people like you and me doing a narrative in, in, a, in the middle of a conversation will be much less fluent and, and much less well-organised in how they deliver that narrative if a listener is not doing their proper work, doing the work that listeners need to do, which, which as I said earlier, will be, you know, paying attention, timing their 
contributions correctly uh, and very importantly, you know, giving the appropriate uptake of the story and uh, as the conversation moves forward. It's a point that I want to emphasize for the listeners who are thinking about communication skills, because we do talk about that quite a bit on the podcast. And so that's a big part of work and things that, that can go wrong at work is a, a breakdown of communication skills. And so I thought this, this information was particularly relevant is if you want to practice your active listening skills, here is where you can learn what can go wrong if you are not sending signals that you're listening to the narrator. And one of the stories that you tell, which is just heartbreaking, this guy's telling a story about how he nearly got killed by a tree that falls on yeah. him. And unfortunately, he's talking to one of the people who's trying to figure out what words start with T. And so the, the listener, the alleged listener, is very distracted by that. And so the poor guy, it's, it's, it's just so sad. He gets to the end of the story and has his big you know, climactic ending and then doesn't get an appropriate response. And so, as you say, he starts circling back. But even then, even worse, he starts apologizing for the quality of the story. And so he says, well, maybe it wasn't really that exciting. And you could just, <laughs> you could just tell, you know, how disappointed he is that his story has fallen flat. I just felt so sorry for him. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a really good point, and it's got to do with you know whose fault it is. Maybe that's not the right kind of word, but you know, what does it take for somebody to communicate something well? the The example that you've just been discussing, you know, shows that the listener is partly responsible for how well this communication event happens. You know, yeah. and, uh, but you know, that's not how it feels. So, from the point right. of view of the speaker. He sort of felt that he'd failed. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point and a, and a really good point to make that that there is a, a – it's one of the themes that I try to emphasise in the book is that, you know, everybody in a conversation has a certain set of duties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a storyteller, yeah, you have certain duties. You, you know, you have to make it interesting. You have to, you know, make it not go on for too long, all of that. But a listener has duties just the same and we don't – I think we we think of those duties as as being more limited than they really are. So yeah. if, if if you think that active listening is just nodding and and looking at the person, uh, it's really more than that. It's you 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 have to think of, about yourself as actually contributing to how the talk is flowing along, right? So it's not even. I, I mean, I know the word active is there in that in that particular expression, but. You know, I think it really needs to be emphasized that that what the listener does actually feeds into this kind of mechanism, this kind of process that the that the speaker is engaged in. And they're really feeding off of you as a as a listener. You know, what I'd also emphasize here is that it's a, a being a good listener is quite a sophisticated thing in a sense. It's not you know, the way we describe it, if we say you're a listener, it seems very simple, right? You just listen, you listen, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you open your ears, you look at the person and you listen. But, you know, when people talk, it's not just flat. It's not just a kind of a, a, a mush of information coming across. People speak in quite structured ways. And the example with the the narratives, um, the narrative with the, the, the guy nearly being killed by a tree, um, the point about that narrative is that you're not just listening to anything. You're actually listening for something. You have to uh, anticipate the structure of what's coming and you've got to think, think, well, what, what is this person trying to do here? What is their destination here? Mm-hmm. You know, so they're sort of, they give you a kind of a map in a way. People will do this in, in conversation, give you a, a kind of a map as to where they're going what they're trying to do mm-hmm. uh, and you need to kind of help them reach that destination in a sense so it's really more than listening I think it's better to think of it as you know as as, as helping them let's talk about this idea of repair that you talk about in the book and how that functions to help a conversation along Sure. Well, repair is really a fundamental aspect of conversation that that is kind of necessitated by the whole 
turn-taking mechanism that the language has. So, uh, you know, we started talking b- before about how a conversation will typically be this exchange, I'll say something, you say something, I'll say something, you say something. Each turn is not predetermined by what happened before and conversation can and does go in you know all sorts of directions so if you say something and I don't quite get what you said for Mm -hmm. example I don't hear it clearly or I don't recognize the name of the person that you used or you know I don't quite understand what you meant so you know there's no guarantee that I'll be able to come back and check that later Mm -hmm. right because too much gets said so we have this constant ever-present kind of opportunity to clarify and check and um, you know inform the other person that somehow we've we've failed to hear or to understand something that they just said and this is what we mean when we talk about uh, a system for repair in in conversation and, and and concretely what that means is simply you know you might say something like uh Sibby's sister had a baby boy you you know you announce this piece of news to me well if I don't know who Sibby's sister is or if I don't if I just didn't hear what you said well I I can't very well respond in the appropriate way right so I I need Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, deal with that and deal with it right there on the spot so I might say who Mm -hmm. or I might say huh Mm -hmm. or I might say Sibby's sister uh -hmm. and when I do that you know what I'm doing is I'm delaying you know, the proper uptake, but I'm doing it for an important reason, which is, you know, I I actually can't, I I don't know what the proper uptake is because I need you to to fix some problem that that was in your bit of speech. So, you know, you might just repeat what you said or you might say the the person's name instead of referring to them as Sibby's sister, the name might be Shirley or something like that. So there's a lot to say about kind of how, the ins and outs of repair actually work. But as a general phenomenon, repair is this very hard working kind of system. So in work that I've done with colleagues, again, uh, looking at data from languages around the world, that type of a, a, of a repair sequence where, for example, one person says who or, or huh, that occurs something like once every I think the 86 seconds or something yeah crazy Uh, I can't remember the exact number but but you know not much more than a minute goes by before somebody has to say who what huh Mm -hmm. and these things are fixed immediately we fix them easily we deal with them you know in in, in in the rapid flow of conversation but we do have to deal with them all the time and and so that that system of repair has evolved and grown up around the system of turn-taking precisely because turn-taking, you know, and language use are so fallible in all sorts of ways and, mm. and you know, it's really this big kind of uh, safety net. So, you know, if we're doing acrobatics and high-wire acts with our speaking and listening, um, you know, we're falling off kind of pretty often and, and having to, <laughs> to, to jump back up every minute or so. This isn't so much repair, but it shows this the important part of participating in conversation. You have some examples in there where somebody is kind of deliberately sabotaging the conversation. So every time somebody says something, the other person says, oh, what do you mean by that? Or kind of presses them for more information. And so, of course, you can imagine playing this out in your mind, how quickly this devolves into a what do you mean? What do I mean? You know, where, where people just get frustrated and one of them it ends with, you know, drop dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, we can't, there's a very delicate balance where, you know, you can initiate repair, you can press and you can check, you know, what did you mean by that uh, quite often as, as, as we were just saying. But if you overdo it or if you do it in ways that aren't justified, mm you know, you quickly realize that there's a, there's, there's a pact in, in conversation right? that, you know, where you've kind of agreed to, to not delay or derail things more than is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a preference for the conversation to progress. There's a preference for us to assume all of the usual assumptions and not kind of unpack them and not kind of challenge them. We go along with the flow 
of of this, the types of norms that that everyone kind of usually uh, assumes. And you know, unless we're doing having a philosophical discussion or something like that, but but most of the time in conversation, we're not. So the examples that you just were referring to are from work in in you know research in sociology going back to the 1960s, where you know this was the work of Harold Garfinkel, a sociologist at, at UCLA, who instructed his students to go out and do these kinds of what he called breaching experiments that you know mm-hmm. he would ask people to breach the social norms and uh, you know i think the example was something like uh the student you know the students were instructed to go and, and sabotage conversations in their everyday life and and so i think the example was something like we had a flat tire yesterday and the student asks this is they're, they're talking to someone in their family what do you mean a flat tire <laughs> You know, well, you know, we all know what a flat tire is. So that that's the kind of thing where a repair sequence is not warranted. Mm-hmm. You know, that people don't really have the entitlement to to dig into people's assumptions about just normal everyday language. Uh, and so those kinds of experiments are important because they show where you know we can quickly and easily you know rupture the surface of of ordinary conversation. And it's 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 interesting because it is so powerful. If you do that type of disruption in your everyday life, you really annoy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think something's wrong with you. They get upset with you, and you know you can kind of quickly alienate people. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so that force against disrupting, you know, what's normal in everyday life is actually a very strong conservative force in in, in society. It, it 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 keeps us all pretty much in line with the usual norms mm. um, not so much the norms of you know your your beliefs and values and so on but the norms of you know what are the basic rules of everyday conversation um, what are the things we can and can't question you talked a little bit about the filler words um and uh and I don't I presume that you have something similar to Toastmasters, if not Toastmasters itself in Australia. But here in the United States, those filler words are really frowned upon in Toastmasters meetings. And uh, people will count them and click at you if you say them too much. And I've always had mixed feelings about it because I, I often suspected that they were serving various purposes, not necessarily for the speaker, but maybe also for the listener so I was yeah. particularly interested in your work on, um, and uh, so can you tell us a, a little bit about them? Sure. Well, um, I mean, firstly, just with Toastmasters. So I, I assume that's a, a public speaking uh, mm-hmm. type of organization. So mm-hmm. it's important to acknowledge that the context in which those words are get frowned upon so much is in public speaking and public speaking is you know or maybe in things like interview settings and so on so these are very particular kind of performative settings where we're being viewed by other people we're being watched very intently by other people for the quality of our performance and so there's a lot at stake there and i think you know it makes sense to to say well you know i wish that when you're doing public speaking you wouldn't say um so much but what we want to do is ask, well, why would that be? And does it apply across the board to, to other ways of speaking? So mm-hmm. if, if we go back to the kind of questions, uh, you know, from earlier on, we were talking about the delays that might occur in conversation. So I might ask you, you know, what sport is the Stanley Cup, in, you know, in? Mm-hmm. I mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get the answer to that within about a second that's one of the places where you will use a word like arm or ah and you'll do it because you want to start speaking within that one second window you don't want to make the other person think that you're just not answering them okay Mm -hmm. so if i'm thinking trying to think of it but i don't actually produce any uh, behavior then you might think well maybe he didn't hear my question or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he's just phasing out or something. Um, so when I say the word arm, what I'm doing is actually making public this kind of private processing problem that I'm currently having. I'm, I'm indicating to you, look, I, 
I am about to produce some more words in a second. It's just that I'm delayed. So please wait. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic kind of what I call a traffic signal. Uh-huh. It's, it's really putting across to the other person something that's in my head. I've got to get it out and just warn you something's coming. Please now wait. So that's a really important function, right? It means, you know, I can let you know in conversation in a very simple way that, uh, you know, that you've been heard and that uh, response is about to come. So seen from that point of view, words like arm and are are actually important and we need them and they play uh, an important role. And the very fact that we produce them so much, you know, just indicates how much we need them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say, well, why don't you just cut out all your ums and ahs? Uh, well, that, of course, that's easier said than done. And the reason is the reason why it's easier said than done is because all of us have these kinds of processing problems at one time or another, right? I mean, in any conversation, we're, we're racking our brains trying to think of what to say next. We're, uh, we've got problems of keeping our attention on track and, and all of that sort of thing. If you know exactly what you want to say, you know exactly when you want to say it, you know, this is the perfect public speaking person, right? You know exactly mm-hmm. what you want to say. You've rehearsed it beautifully. So therefore, you're not going to have any kind of problem with processing. You're not going to have any problem that's creating some kind of delay. And furthermore, in, in public speaking, you're not in a dialogue, right? It's typically right. You're, doing, you're doing monologues. So if you can get rid of those things, then it comes across really well. It implies that there's no uncertainty in your mind about what you're saying Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's every reason to kind of aspire to no longer have those kinds of words in your speech if you're doing something like public speaking or 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 an interview you know and I think in general it's impressive when you can not use those kinds of words but you know I think it's impressive for obvious reasons my point of view in sort of defense of those words is not so much to say well they're, they're they're good and we should you know, use them or they're bad and we shouldn't use them, but more we should understand what they are and we should Mm. understand what their function is and we should sort of, you know, respect them for what they are in a certain sense. So I wouldn't say to Toastmasters, you know, stop that practice of of trying to get rid of ums and ahs, but to what I would say is don't just treat it as a surface-level kind of surgical procedure. We just get rid of these bits of rubbish. Instead, we we try to understand, well, why are they there? And, mm-hmm. and if we understand why they're there, then it makes more sense and it helps us better to understand why we would want them to not be there in particular kinds of situations. I want to circle back to one thing that that I just kept thinking about, and this is this idea that somebody asks a question, the other person knows that they're going to give what you call a just preferred response. They're going to they're going to be forced to give an answer that they know the questioner doesn't want to hear, like I can't give you a ride or whatever the case may be. And so the person actually in your book, not only do they often just pause, but a lot of times they do other things. They kind of cough or stumble around with some filler words, you know, while they're kind of gaining time. And so the first person, as you say, often will jump in and, offer an alternative question or or a solution right well maybe right. you just won't have time that you know that's not going to work out for you and the thing i was thinking about was if there's a third person there often that person will jump in and so you just see this all the time with married people where one of the married couple will ask a question there's this pause while the visitor you know, stumbles around, not quite sure how to answer the question. And then the other spouse will will leap in, you know, with like, oh, honey, don't ask him that. You know, this, so you get this dynamic that I see happen a lot where, where people are trying to avoid that so- social awkwardness. Absolutely. So, you know, we're very sensitive to these things. And what we find is, you know, everybody... On average, you know, people are, 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 there's obviously this conflict between people and certain people don't get along and all of that. But on average, people who are interacting with each other would prefer things to run off smoothly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in general, if we find ourselves talking to a person 
um, again, on average, you know, we we um, we'd rather that they feel comfortable with with what's going on. So this helps to explain well why do we do things like that? Step in, try to defuse a situation, or try mm-hmm. to get someone out of a situation that they that they might not want to be in. It gets also kind of interestingly complex where you have, so you mentioned earlier what happens when people are responding to questions that they you know, don't really want to answer or they haven't got the, the answer that they think the person wants to hear. There's an interesting kind of asymmetry there where if you give the response someone wants to hear, so for example, I invite you around to my place for dinner tomorrow night, if you want to come and you say yes, problem solved you just say yeah that'd be great Mm -hmm. but if you don't want to come you know not only will people delay the response not only will they do things like say um and well but they'll also give a reason they'll give some kind of account for why they can't do it and you know you find that people will not give a reason when they can do it they won't explain why they (laughs) <laughs> they go along with, you know, they won't explain, well, I, you know, I happen to be free or things like that. In, in uh-huh. general, they won't. But it, but but when you're tr- resisting the sort of direction that a person is setting out in a conversation, typically you'll get uh, explanations and reasons coming into the conversation. And that's, um, you know, that's also a really important principle. And it's, it's part of it, in, in a way, part of what helps us to understand what's a what's a, an appropriate or a reasonable request uh, and what would be an appropriate and reasonable you know reason to to deny a request for example if we're if we're looking at the examples of, of things like requests and invitations well Nick I want to thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today to talk about this interesting book and I'll put a link to it in the show notes so our listeners can check it out. It's really it's really just an interesting little book, very well done. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Before I let you go, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners how they could follow your work or anything you'd like to refer them to? Well, you know, I mean, I really appreciate the opportunity to expose your listeners to the book how we talk that we've been talking about today and um you know i i I always appreciate feedback on it so the book is available and people uh, might enjoy reading that i would point out that it's part of a, a broader view of language that really sees language as being a tool for social life it's really you know the way that humans conduct social life the societies we live in the cultures that we live in uh you know all of the discourse the storytelling all of the things that really make human life what it is to me are ultimately grounded in language and it's it, it's mm. not only these issues of communication of conversation that we've been talking about today turn taking and so forth but if you dig in deeper and you look at just the meanings of the words that we have in our languages the the ways that we frame the things that we want to talk about, um, you know, the way that we that we hold our debates, the way that we conduct our relationships, you can explain a lot about language by thinking about it as a tool for social and cultural life. And I think that's really the biggest insight that I've come to understand through my own work. And so, you know, in my work, for example, looking at, uh, you mentioned earlier that I, I am involved in an initiative looking at the so-called post-truth problem. Mm-hmm. To me, you understand the problem of kind of misinformation, fake news, and all of these things much better if you think about language as being essentially for conducting social relationships more than it's for, you know, passing on uh, facts and figures. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when when we look at, fake news uh, and current kind of highly polarised political discourse, this move that people like to talk about where, you know, people are not so much interested in the facts anymore, they just want to be told things that they already believe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier to understand that when you see that language is, or a, a big function of language is to to signal our affiliation, mm. to signal, you know, who we are, connected to and who we're not connected to and so forth. I, I think it's a dangerous situation when that delinks you from 
you know, being able to talk about reality and, and truth and the facts and so on. But if you are trying to understand what's happening in public discourse, I think that thinking about language as being essentially for the purpose of conducting social relations more than it's for the purpose of conveying true information, then I think uh, that helps to understand the role that language is playing. It doesn't mm. solve the problem and it, it doesn't, you know, we, we really need to look at ways to solve the, the problems of current public discourse. But the insights, I think, uh, are there. And in my own work that's continuing in, in a range of different ways, that's really the core theme. It's looking at language as being uh, a tool for conducting our social relationships and ultimately for building and maintaining our societies. I think on your website, you have a link to some of that work that you're doing, and I can include that in the show notes as well. Great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.